Welcome again, everyone. Welcome to Smyrna Campus. We love you guys. We're glad you are with us today. Anybody connecting with us online, we're so happy that you found us there. Uh, if you have, if you're listening online, there is a chat feature there. If you have questions or need somebody to follow up with you and contact you, please be sure you message us there in the chat feature. We are continuing a series of messages we started a couple of weeks ago called Be Encouraged. And we're in our third week of that series. This one's a tough one. Uh, it's a passage of scripture that without some context, you're not gonna understand exactly what he's talking about. It reminded me of a guy, a young man, who aspired to be a writer. He wanted to, to, to be a writer when he grew up, when he got his education, that, that's what he wanted his career to be. But he said, I don't wanna just be any writer, I wanna be a great writer. And someone asked him, well, how do you define great? What would a great writer be? He said, well, a great writer would be somebody who, when, when I write stuff, I want people to react to it on a truly emotional level. Stuff that'll make them cry and scream and, and howl in pain and anger. And that young man grew up to write tax forms for the IRS. <laughs> he achieved his goal. Some things are just hard to write. Some things are hard to receive. Some messages are tough to deal with. And that's one we're looking at this week. Let's turn in 2 Corinthians. We're gonna be looking at a couple of passages here so that we can get the context. I'm gonna start with 2 Corinthians 2, beginning with verse five. Look at verses five through 11. Remember, Paul had written the first letter with rebuke and correction and discipline as the that's the point of the whole letter. And now in this second letter, he's writing to encourage and build them up and help them to move forward with, with what he had asked them to do. And we're looking at, have you ever heard just half of a phone conversation? It happens all the time now, doesn't it? Somebody out in public has maybe their earplugs again, uh, and all you're hearing is them responding to what somebody's saying to them. Uh, as they listen on their earbuds. Or maybe you don't even have the earbuds in and you can't really hear what the other person's saying, but you can hear their response. Well, if you just read this section of this letter, you're only hearing half the conversation or you're only getting half the picture. But let's read it so you can get this half and then we'll go back and look at the other half of the conversation, okay? Here, here it is. If anyone has caused grief, he is not so much grieved to me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So here Paul is instructing them to offer this offer of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration to someone who had committed grievous sin and offended many and caused grief for many. And now he's saying we're at a place now where there needs to be that forgiveness that takes place. There needs to be that restoration, bringing that person back into the fellowship. So without knowing the first letter, without knowing what he's talking about, you're only hearing half the story. Now, most scholars believe 
that what Paul is referring to, he talked about specifically in the first letter. Uh, someone who was committing an open, grievous sin, very public, very ongoing, and it was causing much damage to the reputation of the church fellowship and the name of Christ. And so in the first letter, he rebuked them for not dealing with it. Let's go back now to 1 Corinthians and look at that section of scripture in chapter five, the first five verses there. Listen to the way Paul words this because it's pretty extreme, okay? It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now he says it's actually reported, meaning I'm shocked by what's going on in the church fellowship there. I can't believe I'm hearing this report about what's going on there. And then he says, he goes on to talk about what it is. A kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Now pagans would mean the non-Christian world, those that are not part of the fellowship of the church, okay? Uh, it's, it's, it's an exaggerated thing a little bit. This did happen among the pagans, by the way, but even pagans look down on this kind of activity. Even those outside the church look down on what he's talking about here, okay? And then he goes on to say, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, that can happen with any church family. There can be sexual immorality. There can, and he's not saying that, that, that this is a case where just somebody who's not really uh, all that active in the church or all that connected to the church is doing it. He's, he's going to go on to emphasize why this is even more of a big deal. Okay? He says in verse 2, and you are proud. What he's saying here is, is there's open flagrant immorality in the church fellowship. And it's being paraded around and being celebrated even by the church. Now the reason this applies so much to the church in the world today is this. There is this, this approach now that some denominations and some churches independently are taking where instead of holding firm to the truth while still treating people with love, they are simply tolerating all sin and celebrating everything God calls sin, as if it's perfectly okay. And that's what the church at Corinth had been doing. They were not just tolerating, they were celebrating this open immorality. Evidently, now the way it's worded, it says he's, he's with his father's wife. Evidently, this is not technically his mother, but it's someone his father had married since then, okay? But he is open about it. They're, they're probably coming to the gatherings of the church, the fellowship of the church. They're not trying to act like nothing's going on here. They're, they're just making a show out of it almost. And when someone who claims to identify with Christ, who claims to want to honor Christ with their lives, and, 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 they're, and they're doing something like this, it, it's not just affects them. It doesn't just affect their family, it affects the whole church fellowship. And it doesn't just affect the whole church fellowship, it affects the reputation of the church in the community where they are, that this is going on. And so Paul is not just upset because there's sin in the church. All churches have sin in them, all of them do. We do at Lakeshore. I mean, if we didn't allow sinners in the church, how many of us would be here? None of us. That's not the point of what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm upset at your attitude towards sin. 
at the fact that you're welcoming it and celebrating it as a good thing. Churches today sometimes take great pride in how tolerant they are of everything, as if it's a good thing. Even those things that God says are sin and should not continue to happen. Friends, this is a hard message because it's a hard balance to keep as a church. It's hard to be the loving church God's called us to be while at the same time standing firm on the truth of God's word and letting it be known that some things are just sin and God's not pleased with them and we should not welcome them and celebrate them as a good thing. We should not. And so that's a hard balance to keep because in that culture, it was a lot like the culture we're having now in our communities and our culture in the U.S. and some other countries around the world. What's begun to happen is tolerance is king in our culture. Everything should not just be accepted, but celebrated. Whatever somebody chooses to do, however they choose to live their lives, it should be celebrated as a good thing. And Paul is saying the church should never go to that extreme. That it hurts the cause of Christ and the life of the church. So here's what he says to them. He says, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? All right. They should have been mourning over this sinful situation. It should have grieved them that one of their own was caught up in this kind of ongoing sin in their lives. It should grieve us when one of our brothers or sisters get caught up in some sinful thing in their lives. It should hurt us for them that they're caught up in that because it does so much hurt and pain and damage to them and to others when that happens. We're not talking about just a one time making a mistake and falling here. We're talking about an ongoing willful choice to keep on doing it. That's what we're talking about here. There's a difference in all of us trip and fall. All of us you know, fail from time to time. But what we're supposed to do is repent of it and get back to where we need to be. And this person wasn't doing any of that. And he said, that ought to grieve you that this is going on in this person's life. Then he says, you should have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this. Man, this is the part that is the hardest part of all. It's at that place where he says, that point it had gotten to you should have finally now gotten to that step where you put this person out of the fellowship of the church. Nobody wants to take that step, rightly so. Nobody wants it to ever get to that extreme where that has to happen. And the truth is, it's very rare that ever, that ever actually has to happen. And the scripture deals with that. It talks about that. It's very rare that it ever has to get to that point if you back up and at the beginning of this process take the right steps in response to what's going on. You see, there were other steps that should have already been taken that they had refused to take, that they had not dealt with at all. And so I want us to take some time today to look at the steps that should have been taken in this process because here's what he goes on to say. He says, 
for my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. He's saying this one has already gotten to such an extreme that this is a step you need to take when you assemble together again as a church, but there's a goal behind it. When it says for the destruction of the flesh, all that means is the destruction of the sinful nature. That's what that term means. He's saying we want this man's ongoing willful rebellion and sin to stop. We want that to be put to death. And the goal is so that his spirit can be saved in the day of the Lord. He's saying the only reason we would take this step is because we want this person to be saved. We want this person to be saved for eternity. And in order for this person to be saved, like for any of us, we have to put to death the sinful spirit that wants to control us. It has to be put to death. And so this is a process that we're going to go back and look at here in Scripture on, well, well, how do you go about a process like this? It is so hard in a tolerant culture for the church not to be just labeled as mean-spirited and judgmental and all of that, right? If you do any, anything like that, the world is just shocked that you could be so mean, right? And this passage is never telling us when somebody messes up, you kick them out of the church. That's not what this passage is telling us. Not at all. The mistake a lot of people make is they pull Scripture out of context and use it inappropriately. We never want that to happen here at Lakeshore. So we're not going to do that with this passage. We're not going to pull it out of the context of all of the rest of Scripture that gives us a step-by-step process we're supposed to go through if we are addressing sin in someone's life in the church. So let's go back and look at this. There are several things we want to see. The first one is, what is the church's responsibility when someone willfully chooses to go into a rebellious, sinful lifestyle on an ongoing basis? Now, we're not talking about somebody outside the church. The mistake uh, Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians is we're, we're not supposed to be dealing with this with people outside the church. We can't expect them to act like Christians and live by the standards of the Lord if they're not following Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It's wrong to expect them to do that. But in the church fellowship, yes, we should expect that as people learn and understand, they make the changes they're supposed to make. We are responsible for that. So the church has a responsibility toward those who are part of already the fellowship of the church. We are, we're responsible there. So what are the steps? The, the word church, translated church, is, is the original Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia means the called out ones. Now the way that term was used in that culture was to be called out from among something else to be distinctly different. So the church is made up of those who are called out of the world and into a connection to Christ and others who are connected to Christ into that fellowship to be set apart and distinctly different people. Now, that doesn't mean you separate physically from the world. Paul addressed that in that first letter. You can live uh, on this earth and not be somehow connected to other people in the world. You're going to be connected to other people in the world. He's talking about by lifestyle being distinctly different than other people in the world. Now, he's not saying don't, don't have anything to do with the people of the world who aren't living like they ought to live. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, but you don't participate with them. Remember, Jesus was a friend of sinners, but he didn't sin with them. Right? 
He was a friend of sinners, but he did not sin with them. So there's a distinctiveness that he's calling us to as the ecclesia, as the church. So here are some steps for the church's responsibility. The first step is self-examination. If we as a church aren't teaching the truth and aren't practicing the truth uh, overall as a church, then what right have we got to go tell somebody else, well, you know what, you ought to get your act together. Uh, We don't have the right to do that. We need to examine ourselves. Are we holding firm to the truth? Are we teaching the truth? Do people clearly understand what God's will says about this if they're part of our church? Have we taught clearly what God's will is there? We we have to self-examine. I love Matthew 7 as part of Jesus' great sermon uh, on the mount there, and he's teaching us different things that we need to uh, deal with as Christ followers. And he says this. This is the most famous verse in Scripture today, by the way. The first part of this verse is now the most well-known verse in Scripture. It used to be John 3:16. Now it's this verse, Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Don't you hear that all the time? Do not judge or you too will be judged. So he's starting out there saying, judging other people is something you need to be very careful about because you're going to be judged too. Now, here's the point. If you don't read the rest of this verse, you could take that verse, pull it out of context, and make it seem like the church has no right to ever call anybody out on anything. Right? But that's not where he stops in this sermon, in this message. you got to connect it to the rest of the teaching. Right? Here's what he goes on to say. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then he uses actually what's a humorous illustration. We don't always catch the humor, but it's a humorous illustration. Listen to what he says. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? So you got to start there with self-examination. If you're trying to get, if somebody, if one of you is trying to get a speck of sawdust out of my eye, I'm not going to let you touch my eye if you've got a plank sticking out of yours. Right? Doesn't that make sense? I'm not going to trust you to do something as delicate as getting a little bitty speck out of my eye if you're trying to do it while you got a plank in your eye trying to get in there and do that. That's not going to work well, right? And that's, Jesus is using some humor to kind of offset. It's a serious thing, but he's trying to get them to, to, to lighten up and really listen to what he's saying and get the whole picture here, okay? So he says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when all the time there's a plank in your own? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. Is that where he stops? No, listen to the rest of it. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What do you still have a responsibility to do? Get the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, he didn't just say, don't judge or you'll be judged, period, that's it. No, he's saying self-examine first. Make sure you're honoring God. Not that you're perfect. Nobody's perfect. You couldn't help anybody if you had to be perfect to do it. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying don't have ongoing flagrant sin in your life while you're trying to correct somebody else. That's that's not going to be okay. So get, get your sinful nature under the control of the Spirit of God first. And then you'll be able to help somebody else with the sin struggles they have in their lives. Because you've learned how to do that yourself with the help of God, the leading of the Spirit. You've learned how to do that in your own life. It equips you then to be able to help your brother or sister who's struggling with some sin in their lives. So the first step is self-examination. The second step then is 
kick them out of the church. Is that the second step? No. The second step is gentle confrontation. Notice the word gentle connected to confrontation, okay? In Galatians 6.1, Paul wrote this. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, right? You've examined yourself, you're walking in the Spirit, should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. So he says, if you see someone that's getting caught up in ongoing sinful lifestyle, then your first step is not to go to some extreme measure and go to other people and tell them about it and get them all praying. That's not the first step. The first step is to go directly to that person and gently, that means with love and compassion, try to help restore that person. The word translated restore is an interesting word. In that culture, it was used to refer to mending a broken limb. When I was uh, in high school, my junior year, I was playing football, and our last practice before our first game of the season, I broke my collarbone at practice, my right collarbone. And kind of a freak accident, it didn't, you know, two of us were running full speed, didn't see each other, ran into each other, broke my collarbone, knocked the other guy out, it was fun, right? So they took me immediately to the emergency room and my doctor was there on call, I, I love that. So my doctor comes in and he looks at it and, and I could tell when he felt it that the bone was a clean break and it was sticking up, almost poking through the skin. And he said, now, Randy, very casually, <laughs> I'm going to have to set this for you. I said, okay. I'm in pain, right? I, I just want it to be fixed. I want, it, I want the pain to stop. I'm hurting as bad as I could ever think about hurting. And, and he says, okay. He says, I'm going to reset it for you. I said, okay, that's great. I didn't know what he meant. I thought he's going to give me some pain medicine. He's going to, you know, numb me. He's going to put, you know, or maybe this won't hurt, right? So he, boom, push, pushes it back down in place. I passed out. I'm not ashamed to say it. I passed out. They had to catch me. I fell off the table, passed out, right? It was bad. As painful as it was, did it need to be done? Did it have to be done? Yeah. In order for it to heal, that had to be done. You see, trying to go to somebody who's caught up in sin, you're trying to help them, it is hard. It can be painful for them and for you. I mean, it's risky, right? You don't know how they're gonna to respond to you when you try to do it. Even no matter how much you're doing it because you love them and you care about them and you care about others, sometimes they just don't take it well, do they? Because it hurts. But in order for healing to take place, you gotta go through some of the pain for the healing to occur. As parents, this is one of the hardest things to do with our kids, right? Let them suffer some pain for correction to take place. But it's true with brothers and sisters in Christ and the church family too. It's a really hard thing to do. But he says to do it gently. Try to restore with the purpose of healing. So the motivation is not, I want to expose this person's sin. I want to make them look bad to others and I want to tear. That's never the motive behind this. It's always, I want healing for this person's life. That's got to be the motive behind it or you're not doing it the right way at all. We want healing to occur. In Matthew 18, verse 15, he said this, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. 
First step, if there's a problem, is not go tell other people. It's not go get a group together on your side to be against their side. That's never the approach you're supposed to take. What are you supposed to do first? Go directly to that person. And he says to do it in private. This doesn't have to be exposed to anybody else first. There's no reason for it to be. Because here's what happens. Sometimes that's all it takes for correction and healing. Is that one time getting with them in private, praying with them and talking with them, maybe sharing scripture with them. Sometimes that's all it takes for correction and healing. And we would have done a lot of damage if we took it to other people first when that's all we needed to do. Let's go talk to that person. You see, the more people you bring into it, the more embarrassment there is for that person. That may not even have to happen at all if you just talk to them first. You're just making it awkward for them if you don't do that first. In private, just the two of you have a discussion with that person. First step is to check on yourself the second step is just gentle confrontation one-on-one just with that person. Now, here's the thing. If at any point in this process they repent, they get back on track, then you don't have to take any other steps, okay? So you can eliminate every other step after this if the person responds well. But if they don't respond, if they're not willing to, to acknowledge sin and make changes and ask for forgiveness, if they don't do any of that, then the next step is group intervention, according to Scripture. Group intervention. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 18. It says, this is a continuation. After you go to them just one-on-one, -on -one, if they will not listen, take it to one or two others. Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, here's where it comes into a harder step to take. You need to get a couple of trusted people that you know love the Lord too and love this person and go together to talk to this person. Now, why do you need a couple of other people with you? Here's why. Because if they're not wanting to change, what they're likely to do is accuse you and maybe accuse the whole church of not handling this well and not doing the right thing, right? And it can hurt and tear up and cause division in the church. So you get some people to go with you who can say, I know that's not what they said. And I know that's not what this person said. We were right there. We heard both sides of this. And we can attest to the fact Here's how this was handled. Here's what was said. Sometimes you just have to do that because people are not wanting to cooperate. They're not wanting to, to make changes. And here's what happens. A lot of times we all have this tendency. Listen, we all do. When we get confronted with sin or problems in our lives, we have a tendency to get defensive. We all do. That's our first fleshly response is to get defensive when somebody's calling us out on something we've done wrong. And when you get defensive, you tend to respond in a not-so-good, loving way. And that's why you might need some witnesses to be there to say, we know what was said and what was done in this meeting. That's not the first step. You don't ever start there. But it may get to that place where you have to take that step. The goal behind all of it is, is again, to get that person to deal with their sin before God so that they can be healed and restored. That's always the goal with every one of these steps is to help them get back to where they need to be. Well, the next step is to look at the hardest one of all, 
It is what I would call deliberate isolation. Deliberate isolation. He goes on to say in verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, all right, you've talked to them one-on-one in private, tried to help them see it. You've taken a couple of people with you, tried to talk through it, help them see what they need to do. And if they still refuse to listen, even after you take those steps, here's what he says, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I love those terms, pagan or tax collector. (laughs) Tax collectors had a category all their own. I think they still should. No, I'm just joking. Uh, I pay my taxes, but I don't want to pay any more than I have to, right? But all right, here's the deal. What he's saying is, this is not somebody outside the church. This is not somebody who's, who's not saying they're a Christ follower and all that. This is somebody who claims to be a Christ follower, represents as very active in the church, and they're flaunting their sin. They're refusing to repent. Then the final last step you take is say, we're not going to treat you like you're a part of the fellowship anymore. Man, nobody wants to do that. I can assure you, Nobody who loves God and love, uh, loves others ever wants to take this step, ever. But there are extreme cases, rare cases, where you've tried everything else and nothing has worked. Now, the goal with this step, you have to understand, is this person had before this been so connected to the fellowship that for that to be broken is going to be like a huge deal in their lives. Now, if somebody hasn't really been actively part of the fellowship already, this step has no value, right? They weren't part of the fellowship already, so it's no big deal. But if they were really actively involved as a part of the fellowship and you say, we can't allow you to be that anymore, then that should be something they miss terribly. They can't believe they won't have that in their lives anymore because it had been so much a part of their lives before this. And it's not, listen, this, even this step as not intended to keep them out of the church. You need to understand that. This step is never intended to keep somebody out of the church. This step is to have that factor of shock and bewilderment where they can't believe it and they begin to question themselves. Could they be right about this? Could they actually be saying the right thing here? Maybe I do need to change this thing in my life because I don't want to miss out on the fellowship of the church. I do not want to miss out on the love and and the friendships and and, and the, the encouragement and the teaching of the church. I don't want to miss out on that. So they're willing now to listen to the correction. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That means the the, the putting to death the sin and then so that his spirit might be saved. That's what you're wanting more than anything else is for this man's spirit to be saved. Church discipline is one of the hardest things in the world, but it's necessary sometimes. But church discipline should never skip steps, ever. It should never immediately jump over to something that's way beyond what the scripture says we're supposed to do first and second and third in this process. 
You never skip over the other steps. It's never okay to jump immediately to just kicking somebody out of the church. And by the way, this is not kicking them out of the church. They're not even saying they can't attend anymore. What they're saying is they can't be treated like they're part of the fellowship anymore. We have people attend all the time that aren't part of the fellowship. Always. Almost every Sunday. That's not what he's saying is they can't attend anymore. He's saying they can't be considered part of the family of the fellowship of the church at that point. So it's hard, but that's the responsibility of the church. Well, let's secondly here very quickly look at the backslider's responsibility. If the person is caught up in sin and, and, and this is brought to their attention by the teaching of the church, then the first thing they need to do is express sorrow for what they've done. That's what you're wanting is for them to come to that place where they, they're actually sorry for their sins. In 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, later on in the 2 Corinthian letter, Paul says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So here's what you want to have happen. Maybe in that first step, they say, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize I was causing so much hurt and pain and damage. I want to repent. I want to get back on track. Would you help me with that? That would be ideal, right? That's exactly what you want to have happen. For them to be sorry in such a way that it's not the kind of sorrow that leads to death, but it's the kind of sorrow that leads to repentance and restoration. That's what you're wanting to have happen here. So the godly sorrow is where it needs to start. The second step they need to take is to practice repentance. Practice repentance. In 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 9, he said this about the first letter that he wrote to them and how it caused them sorrow. Here's what he says. Yet now I'm happy not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to what? Repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. You see, if their sorrow leads them to repentance, not only did you not hurt them, you helped them when you did this for them. You've actually helped them get back to where they need to be. Not an easy thing to do, but if it helps them, that's the goal. Just like when you discipline your children, it's not an easy thing to do, but if it's helpful, if it corrects them, if it gets them on track, that's what you need to do, right, as a parent. So it's a step that you're looking for that response where they practice repentance. And then their third step should be to seek, seek reconciliation. Seek reconciliation. I love what Paul said in Acts 26 and verse 20 uh, about his work of preaching to the Gentiles and to the Jews as well. He says this, For to those in Damascus and then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their what? Deeds. You see, repentance always takes action. People can be sorrowful without repenting, without changing their lifestyle. What we're calling for them to do is not just be sorry they messed up, but to actually be sorrowful in such a way it leads them to repent, which means they turn around, they stop doing that thing that they were doing that they needed to repent of, and now they start practicing it the way they're supposed to, living life more in line with God's plan and God's will for their lives. That's the goal. That's the outcome you're looking for from that person that you're trying to bring back to and restore to the fellowship. Now, let's get back to this 2 Corinthians section of Scripture. When Paul says this next part that we looked at already about restoring this person and loving them and reaffirming your love, it's because this person has gone through that process. 
they've made the change. They accepted the correction. We don't know all the details. We don't have all the details. We don't have to know them. All right, we just know that it's been corrected. And that's the key. Was he mad at first? We don't know. Did he, did he fight about it at first? We don't know. Did, did he cause a stink? We don't know. But we know at this point, he's made the correction that needed to be made. And so when you make the correction that you need to make, the church should be right there to offer forgiveness immediately. I mean, that should be the first response. If you're truly repentant and you're willing to make the changes, then God's grace and mercy will be experienced through the church. Listen again to 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 2 verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. But here's what Paul says. All right, now the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. You did it right, and it accomplished what you wanted it to accomplish. Now, he says, here's the next step. You ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. You know what it's like, maybe. I hope not, but a lot of people do. To mess, have messed up really badly and to come around people who always hold it against you and always make you feel bad or awkward because of that thing. You know they know about it, you know they, they, they were upset by it, and now they keep on holding it against you. You know how disheartening that is. He's saying, church, don't ever be that church. Don't ever be that church where somebody's past is gonna be held over their head when they come back in repentance, wanting restoration. Don't ever be that unforgiving church to anybody. I love that Lakeshore is known as one of the most loving, caring fellowships in the body of Christ. And part of that is because we all understand we're all sinners, totally dependent on the grace of God. We all are. And if forgiveness is not extended to me, I can't belong. And if forgiveness is not extended to you, you can't belong to this fellowship. We're all totally dependent on grace and mercy and forgiveness. So when someone is willing to repent and seek forgiveness, the church should step up immediately and offer that forgiveness. And then the second step is if you're offering forgiveness, then if this last extreme step had been taken where fellowship was cut off, then you need to restore fellowship immediately. Look at 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 8. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Reaffirm means be firm in reconnecting with this person in relationship, in activity, and in friendship, and love, you reaffirm your fellowship with this person because they've done exactly what God was calling them to do when they repented and came back to him. You reaffirm that loving relationship with that person. Well, they know it's there for them. They don't have to wonder about it. They don't have to, to go around with doubt and suspicion that maybe you don't, you don't love them anymore. They know it for a fact by the way you're treating them now. Man, the church should be great at this. We should be leading the way in our world and showing how this is done and reaffirming that fellowship, restoring that fellowship. But then there's one more step the church has always got to take, and that is to continue teaching the truth of God. We've got to continue teaching the truth. And friends, I know this happens all the time. I have people who think that I mentioned something in a sermon because of something in their lives personally. Even when I'm just preaching through a book of the Bible and I just happen to get to that subject, 
They think, oh, he's, he's, he's picking on me today. Well, if it's picking on you, that's the Holy Spirit. That's not Pastor Randy. I don't pick on anybody. I got plenty of stuff to pick on in my own life. I don't have to pick on anybody else, right? But I teach the word. Our other teachers at Lakeshore teach the word. And that's because here's what happens. If we teach the truth and we do it in love, here's what happens. For a lot of people that will allow them to never get to the point where we have to exercise discipline in their lives. You see, if you're hearing the truth and you're knowing it's out of love, that God loves you, the church loves you, then it's easier to receive the teaching, isn't it? It's easier then to make the changes all along the way so nobody has to, to come to you and address these things in your life because you're doing them already. But that doesn't happen if we're not teaching the truth consistently in these areas. You have to be hearing the truth to know what correction to make, to know what, what needs to happen there. Look at what he says here in 9 through 11 of 2 Corinthians 2. Another reason I wrote was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. So Paul is saying, all right, I wrote you to, do, to take this action because I wanted to see if you were going to listen to the teaching and do what I was telling you to do, right? He went on teaching them about this. And then he says, anyone you forgive, I forgive, right? What I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. But he adds this, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. The way Satan wins is through deception and getting us to believe things are true that aren't true and believe things are un believe things that are untrue that really are true. You see, Satan practices deception all the time. So the church has this responsibility when people are getting caught up in sin or confused by what the world is saying. We've got a responsibility to be a beacon of light of the truth of God combined with the love of God for their lives. And here at Lakeshore, we take that seriously. We want to call you into that truth. We want you to be hearing the truth regularly. If you're like me, if you're like me, you need to hear it. You need to hear it often. You need to have it repeated over and over again. That's what we need with the truth. That's what the church needs to be, is that beacon of truth in the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that today, even though this is a hard thing to have to hear and listen to and, and, and much harder even to put into practice, it should be just a normal part of who we are as Christ followers to want to help people find their way back to where they need to be if they've gotten off track and gotten lost. We should love them so much, care about them so much and their family and their friends so much that we can't just sit back and be silent and uncaring when so much hurt and damage is gonna be done. But Father, help us to remember we're sinners too. We need grace and mercy and tenderness and compassion and so does everybody else. Help us to be that representative of Christ that does it with the right motivations always. And help us to teach the truth and live out the truth so that others, others can on their own make those choices that they walk in the truth to. May we be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.